So you might say it's been a week of regression for me because not only did I get a chance to play with Plato this week, I also went back to high school um, for, for two days, actually. Um, I, I didn't go back for myself, but I got to experience high school and I, and I got to experience all of the, uh, or I got to experience all of the awkwardness of, of high school, of, of like the first day of high school all over again. Um, as you know, we as you know we have a family that, that we have sponsored from Sudan. Um, we have all of those awesome people. We have Abdu, and then we have Halom, and then we have all of the the, the gals that are there, Faisa and Namata, and then the youngest is Maka, and 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 Maka's 17, and so Maka is still young enough to get her English training through the school system, and so I went to Reynolds Secondary School with Maka. On, uh, on Tuesday morning. And uh, let me just, or Tuesday, like noonish, I guess. And, and uh, let me just say, I forgot how crowded high school is, okay? And, and I mean, there's people like running all over the place and everything. And, and my job, I, I guess we thought it was simple. I guess, I, I, I don't know. I guess I just didn't have it in my mind. But what my, my initial marching orders were, okay, so take her to Reynolds and, and get her in touch with her, like, student services person and, and just do that and everything will be cool. So the first thing that happens is we kind of get a little bit of, you know, we get our signals crossed and we've got people down at, at the health authority, you know, getting all their immunizations done and everything. Maka gets up here and she's like, I got to go get my backpack out of the house. And we try to go get her backpack out of the house next door and it's locked and she doesn't have a key. So now, first day of school, and I don't have any of my stuff. Okay, great, you know. And then we go, we go walking in, and I get her connected with the student services person, and I'm like, okay, so everything's good. Have a great day. I'll see you later. And I don't know if you know, like, I mean, if you think about, like, Sudanese culture, young girl touching man doesn't happen very much. Okay, I'm starting to turn around and walk away, and all of a sudden, like, on my sleeve, and she goes, don't go. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Okay. I'm not going yet. So I was like, okay, great. Where are we going? And she goes, oh, we've got opening. The teacher says, oh, we've got opening orientation. And I'm like, okay, opening orientation. I have no idea what this is. What it is is funneling in like cattle into the gymnasium. And I literally mean like cattle, okay? I mean, we're all like squashed in, moving in. You know, I've got... I've got Maka, and I'm kind of like, okay, let's just, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to lose you, and we're trying to follow the teacher in front of us and everything. And we get in there, and that's, and God just kind of starts opening my eyes, and I'm like, man, this is a little, like, this is, like, not what I expected, so I'm a little off my game, and it's a little uncomfortable for me, and I'm going, man, it's been a while since I've been out of youth ministry, evidently, because I used to be able to just, like, oh, no problem. I'll just move right into there with a bunch of kids. And now I'm like, oh, man, they dress funny. Oh, man, they talk funny. We did not have orange hair when I was in high school. You know, and, and then, but God really opens me up and goes, hey, what do you think it feels like for her? What do you think it feels like for her? And just as I'm kind of getting that, that revelation in my mind, she grabs me again by the elbow. <laughs> and, 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 and Maka's working on her English. She's getting really good, but is still kind of piecing it together. And I hear very clearly, I want to go home. 
And I was just like, oh, hun, I, me too. <laughs> me too. We can't go home. But I'm not going anywhere. And so we stayed, I stayed through orientation. I stayed through all of our class rotations. We, we, we did little, like, runs of, like, you know, from, okay, for when you come in, you'll come in. We went out to the bus stop and went, okay, here's the bus stop where you'll be. And then here's where you go to your first class. Okay, cool. And then here's where you go to your second class. And then you come back for orientation, homeroom thing. And then you go to this class, you know, and by the end, I'm like, I'm exhausted. I, I'm not even sure if I know where I am now. But I imagine her being surrounded by these people that don't look like her, that don't talk like her, that don't necessarily share the same beliefs as her, and just feeling completely out of place. And we went through it. We had lunch a little bit. We talked afterward. I got her home and everything. Family was back by then. She could get back into the house. I also found out that in her backpack was her bus pass, so it, also, it would have been a really, really good idea that I hadn't left because then she would have been walking home from school. And the next morning, as I'm, as I'm driving in, you know, after an appointment or everything, and I'm driving over by the school, I'm like, I'm just going to go check. I'm just going to go check, because if I had a first day like that day, I don't know if I'd do a second day. I just want to go check. And so it's about like 9.30 or whatever, right? And she should have been there at like 8.25, and so I just kind of go park, and I walk in, and sure enough, there she is in her classroom. And, uh, and she's doing, she's working on an iPad that's translating Arabic to English, right? Trying to work through this, like, little orientation. And the question that she's on, I love the question that she's on, is what words would I like people who know me to describe me as, or, or to say about me, to describe who I am? And there's, you know, there's little, like, prompts, like, smart, funny, you know, hardworking, you know, things like that. And she's kind of typing them all in, trying to figure out, like, what this question is. And, uh, and we're, we're talking a little bit about it using the iPad to kind of help us and everything. And I went, okay, I would add another word that's not on there. And I type in courageous, and I give it to her. And I say, I would use that word to describe you. And she kind of tears up a little, and she goes, okay. You know, like, and I'm like, sweet. Because it takes courage. It takes courage to go into difficult places. It takes courage to go into uncomfortable places. It takes courage because the way is perilous, but we still go because of the end that we see. And what I realized is that Maka was teaching me about this passage of Acts this week. God was using Maka to teach me about this passage because she knows the end that she wants. She wants to live a life that is free. Of, of, of the persecution that, that her family faced when they were in the refugee camps in Chad and the uncertainty there. But the way is perilous in order to get there and the way is difficult in order to get there, but she still shows up and she still goes. And, and I look at this passage of Paul. I look at this passage in Acts 21 of, of, of Paul moving toward Jerusalem, and it, and it actually reminds me, and I think it's supposed to remind us, a lot of Jesus as he kind of sets his face toward Jerusalem. Luke, Luke and Acts are two parts of the same story, right? And so, so you see this happening in Luke, where, where Luke is, is moving, Luke has Jesus moving toward Jerusalem, and you know something bad's going to happen, and Jesus even knows something bad's going to happen, and he's even telling his disciples, 
believe me, the scriptures have foretold, and how would he know that the scriptures have foretold if the Spirit hasn't, like, you know, made it clear that God's Word is saying this? You know, scriptures say that this is going to happen. You know, that, that I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I am going to be convicted falsely, and I am going to be killed. But I'm going to rise. And they keep saying, no, 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 this can't, you know, this, this isn't right, this can't happen. And they keep saying, well, th- then let's just not go to Jerusalem, right? You know, and finally you got guys like Thomas that are like, fine, let's just go so that we can die with him. You know, I'm like, thanks for the great perspective there, Thomas, that's real optimistic of you. And, 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 and you, look at, you look at this passage, and, and it looks like Paul is just bent on getting to Jerusalem, but then this really interesting thing happens, because last week Jeb kind of talked about it. Paul even says, like, the Spirit's told me that I need to go to Jerusalem, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen to me there. So we know it's the Spirit that's moving Paul there, but now all of a sudden the Spirit starts showing up with all these warnings. And I kind of... At first reading, I don't know if you do, but it kind of makes me trip over because it looks like the Spirit is contradicting himself because on the one side, here, here we have, you know, Paul being led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now all of a sudden there are all these disciples that are showing up saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And then you have a guy who's a recognized prophet, Agabus, and he comes and literally takes Paul's belt off of him, binds up his hands and feet, and says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt when they go to Jerusalem. Okay, to me that would be a pretty clear sign, like, don't go to Jerusalem. Or is it? Is, is Paul just being stubborn? Is Paul, is Paul just ignoring the Holy Spirit? Like, what are we supposed to make of these, like, conflicting things? And there really is a conflict here that needs to be resolved for us, okay? And, and, and like I said, at first glance, this looks like, it looks like this passage is about discerning the Spirit or maybe lack of discernment. But I want us to dig a little bit, a little bit deeper, and I think it starts with looking at the nature of prophecy in the Bible, okay? When Agabus does this thing with the belt, okay, we need to kind of not look at it. I mean, we, we think of prophecy as like, well, I've tried to help us understand prophecy as like bringing the truth of God into the, into the real life of our everyday. But I think sometimes we still see it as like, like fortune telling, like it's being able to predict the future, Okay, there is an element to that, but mostly it's about making God's word known into the reality of our situation. But there is also a sense in which because God is making his reality known into our situation, God's not bounded by the time of our situation. So God can take something that's out in front of where we are and make it known where we are. Does that make sense? And so if you look at the understanding of prophecy in the Old Testament, the, 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 the understanding of prophecy that, that, that Paul would have had as a Jew, that, that the believers, that even Agabus would have had, that even Jesus would have had as he went toward Jerusalem with the Spirit going, this is what's going to happen to you when you get there. Okay? You look back into the Old Testament, there's a story about Jeremiah, and he goes and he gets this really nice pot, and he goes, this is Jerusalem. 
This is the Jewish people. And everybody goes, okay. And then he goes, and breaks it on the ground. And everybody goes, okay. And there's another story about Ezekiel holding up a brick and saying, this is Jerusalem. And everybody goes, okay. And then he grabs a whole bunch more bricks and makes a little model and says, this is Jerusalem. And everybody goes, okay. And then he starts to like build siege engines and make like, it's like he's playing with Lego. Okay. He's like, and this is Jerusalem, you know, and starts knocking down the walls and the armies are coming in. It's like he's, he's playing action figure and everybody goes, okay. And then there's Isaiah who says, I am the Jewish people. And everybody goes, okay. And then he takes off his sandals and he takes off all his clothes and walks through the streets. It's in there. Okay? I'm not making this stuff up. And says, this is, what's, this is the Jewish people as we go into exile. This is what's going to happen for our unfaithfulness. And people go, okay. There's a sense, and all of these things are a part of, of Israel's history of understanding prophecy, of actually, like, there's a point at which these acts that are done in the Spirit of God bring part of God's future into the present to be visible, even if they're just symbolic at that point in time, right? Like, like Jerusalem's not really a pot that's being broken right then, but he's saying, look, this is representative of what's going to happen. And even because I am breaking this pot open because the Spirit is leading me to do this, says Jeremiah, the, the assurance that that is going to happen is now kind of being enforced. Or the assurance that our walls are not going to hold, says Ezekiel, against the assault of Babylon, and you guys should get right with God. That's a, that's a given. Or the reality that we're going to be paraded naked through the streets, says Isaiah, that's going to happen. It may be symbolic right now, but it's going to be reality soon. And, and so we have to realize that with that in mind, there's no way that Paul is taking what the people that they meet in Cyprus that say, like, bad things are waiting for you in Jerusalem. There's no way that he just ignores that. And there's no way that he says there's no power in that, okay? And especially when Agabus comes in and does this thing that's in the same vein as what Jeremiah and what Ezekiel and what Isaiah does and, 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 and actually takes the belt and says, this is what is going to happen to the owner of this belt. There's no way that he's ignoring him. And there's no way that he's taking it lightly. There's no way he's saying there's no power in that. So if those things are not happening, then, then there's only one question. What is happening? Why, why, is, why are these warnings coming? And I think in order to read this well, in order to really understand this, and in order to really apply this as a church today, we have to have a better understanding of the cost of discipleship. Because that... That's what this passage is truly about, okay? This passage isn't about discernment of the Spirit. This passage is about the Spirit leading Paul in the way of discipleship and making it clear that he is moving in the path of discipleship because he is moving into something perilous, because he is moving into something dangerous, because he is moving 
into something difficult that is going to be painful, that is going to be hard. There is a relationship between the cost that you pay to follow Jesus and the fervency with which you follow him. And if you think that I'm talking about works-based faith, I'm not. I'm just saying there's a simple relationship. Consider, consider what Luke says when he, Luke says that Jesus says when he's sitting around the table with the Pharisee and the prostitute comes in and begins to like touch his feet and anoint his feet and, 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 and weep and clean his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And the Pharisee's like, wow, I wish Jesus was a real prophet because he'd know what kind of woman this is. And he goes, you know what, I'd, I'd kind of like to tell you a little story. And there were these two people, and one of them had a very small debt that was forgiven, and one of them had a completely unpayable debt that was forgiven by the same person. Who's going to love that person more? And the guy goes, well, the one who had the big debt. And he goes, okay, just remember, if you've been forgiven much, you love much. That's a fact. If you only feel like you've been forgiven a little, well, you're going to kind of love little. There's a there has to be a recognition of how much we have been loved, how much we have been forgiven. And when we have been forgiven much, we love extravagantly. But right on the heels of that, Jesus will then turn and say things like, if you don't love me more than your family, if you don't love me more than your stuff, if you don't love me more than life itself, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And if you don't pick up your cross and follow in my steps, you're not worthy of me. Do you see the relationship there? If you've been forgiven much, you love much. If you love much, you'll sacrifice much. It's not transactional. It's not so that you can gain the blessing of God. It's just what grateful people do. It's just what grateful disciples do. It's just how we live. Jesus doesn't mince words about the cost of discipleship. He doesn't use words like, well, if, I don't want to make this too difficult for you, so if you'll just, well, I know you've got other plans, so if you'll only, yeah, I don't see that anywhere in the Gospels, right? He just goes, I, I have a great love for you, and I would love for you to enter into it, and this is what it looks like. And he just leaves it there. And he says, if you're not willing to enter into it, I, I mean, that's fine. Don't, and, and he follows up the whole, he follows up the whole, like, you know, take up your cross and follow me or you're not worthy of me. He follows it up with another story that says, hey, look, don't be like that guy who went to go plan building this huge building and then didn't estimate the cost and only got halfway done. And then there's this, like, shell of a building and everybody passes by. You guys have seen the place over in Colwood, right? Right off of Goldstream Avenue. That apartment complex looks really awesome on the billboard. But that is the most rusty rebar I've ever seen in my life. And it's been sitting there for four years, as long as I've been here. And there's no movement on it. None. And you know what? There's not going to be any movement on it. And everybody, every time I drive by that thing, like on the way to like wherever it is I'm going, you know, Woody's Lagoon or like to go see my dentist or wherever it is over there, I always, I'm, I'm always like, I wonder what the story is there. I'm sure somebody knows, but, it, but, it, but I mean, I'm sure that everybody that passes by that goes, 
wonder what the story is about somebody who had all these grand plans and then like didn't do their homework and follow through with the cost of it. And Jesus is like, don't let your discipleship look like that. Don't let your discipleship look like that. If we're going to read this passage, we have to read it with an understanding that Jesus doesn't mince words about the cost of discipleship. And it should raise questions for me and for us if we find ourselves trying to make our discipleship about seeking a comfortable Christianity, about seeking a compromising Christianity, about, about seeking a Christianity that I can work with, that fits my needs. If that, I mean, if that is the direction of, if, of my discipleship, I will be real with you, church. You need to seriously ask hard questions about the nature of you following Jesus. That's not my opinion. That's just, that's Luke 14, okay? The cross is not an option for anybody. The cross is the, cross is the thing that the disciple picks up. It's just a fact. It's what we do because of who we are. Again, not so that we can gain the blessing, it's because we're grateful people. Grateful people don't, don't find it hard to pick up the cross because the cross that we're picking up is definitely not bigger than the cross that, that we gave over to Jesus. Okay, if you'd like to trade him for the sin of the world sometime, I'm sure he'd be willing to, you know, to, uh, to let you experience even a fraction of what that might be like. And you will say, I am good with mine, thanks. I'm good with mine. And so we have this thing where, 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 where these warnings are coming, but what are, they, what are they really warnings of? Are they warnings to try and wave Paul away from discomfort? I don't believe so. What I think they are is I think they are warnings the way that like directional signs are warnings on the road for us. Not the one that says bridge out, but the one that says you're going the right way. And that's why Paul gives the response that he says. He goes like, look, guys, why are, you, why are you weeping and breaking my heart trying to dissuade me from this course? If, if my path is to be the same when I go to Jerusalem as Jesus was when he went to Jerusalem, then that's fine. Because even if, even if my path ends up the same, this is an interesting thing to think about, okay? Even if Paul's path ends up exactly the same, as Jesus. He goes in, he goes into the temple, they arrest him, and they crucify him. End of Acts. Even if it went that way, would his sacrifice be the same as Jesus? Absolutely not, because it wouldn't be a sacrifice of repentance. This would not be the same thing happening all over again. This would be the sacrifice of a free person who was forgiven and free by the blood of Christ. Not, not a cost to enter into heaven, not a cost to take care of sin. It would be the sacrifice of a, of a grateful person who is just living in the steps of the cross. And even then, it doesn't end up the same, right? He ends up, he ends up being freed, and, and you know, he ends up going to Rome. You know, the, his path leads to Jerusalem, but the gospel is going to Rome in the ends of the world. And that's where, that's where this is all moving, and that's where we're going to keep talking about with the Spirit. But... 
boy, realize. Like, hear the power in these words of Paul as he just says, look, if this is my path, this is a great path because it's a path that is in the steps of Christ and the Spirit is telling me danger awaits. Not to wave me off, but to say, you are in the way of Christ. And I'm kind of surprised by the Jerusalem church sometimes about the way that they react. If you look further in the story, like James and everybody who even sent these people, you know, to to warn Paul, they know something's getting ready to go down. So they kind of devise this plan where like Paul's going to take part in this ritual and he's going to pay for these other guys that are taking part in this ritual and he'll publicly show everybody that, that all this stuff that they were worried about with Paul is not true and everything will be fine. And you see, you see Paul kind of go, okay, all right, I'll, I'll participate in the ritual. I know where this is heading, guys, but I, okay. We're kind of of left with with two options when we see the way of the cross in front of us and when we see the way of difficulty in front of us. We can either expend our energy the way that the Jerusalem church leaders do of like trying to find ways to get around it or we can expend our energy in grounding ourselves in the one who is able to walk through it with us. And that's the big difference I see in what Paul does and and what's happening with the Jerusalem churches is they're trying to figure out a way to get around this problem. And how much, of my, how much of my life do I spend trying to get around the difficulties rather than embracing the power of God to guide me through those difficulties and actually glorify himself through those difficulties? We talked about that this morning even in our class on prayer. That, that calling out to God is, is not so much to deliver me from my problems as it is to guide me with his presence and ground me in his presence so that I can go through those things. I believe the heart of discipleship is seeking, the heart of, the heart of discipleship is, is seeking God all of the awareness in the middle of our difficulty. And I think that's really the gift of the Holy Spirit for us, okay? And and the thing that we can pull out of this time, the thing that I think we can pull out of this passage as we start to close, is that the gift of the Spirit is not deliverance from our difficulties, okay? That that idea that, that only good things happen to faithful people was laid to rest on a Friday afternoon on Calvary, okay? Jesus was the most faithful person. If that, if that idea works... If that theology works, then nothing should have happened to him because he was faithful. But actually, because he was faithful, he was able and willing to embrace the cross. And he was able and willing to embrace everything that comes beyond the cross, right? Because without the cross, there is no transformation. Without the cross, there is no empty tomb. Without the cross, there is no ascension. Without the cross, there is no finished coming of the kingdom. There is no good end in store for us. Because Jesus is faithful. See, the gift of the Spirit is not that it delivers me from difficulty. The gift of the Spirit is that it gives meaning to my difficulty. It gives purpose to the difficulty that I face, to the pain, to the suffering, to the trial. 
right? And so as we consider our trials, as we consider our difficulties, I pray that God's Spirit will renew our thinking in this. As we move, especially as we move to the table, which is, which is so connected to that sacrifice and yet so connected to our transformation. We move with that kind of spirit. I'll just close with this thought. I, I, we have gone sometimes to um, Ash Wednesday services over at St. Luke's over here at the Anglican Church and have done that as a family. And I remember very, very clearly um, one of the, the, like the first year we were here, we went and uh, and they were they were serving communion and there's this part in which the the priest is praying and he goes and he takes his arms and he kind of spreads them out over the the bread and the cup and and Molly sweet Molly um, you know being like four or five at that time she's like dad dad he's trying to look like Jesus on the cross like really loud right in the middle of it and I'm like. And then I thought about it and I went, you know, that would not be a very bad thing to say about a disciple, now would it? Hey, hey, look at them. They're trying to look like Jesus on the cross. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so may our thoughts and our attention be focused in that direction as we come to the table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your rich mercy. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you that that brings purpose to our struggle, Lord. And, and Lord, we confess that sometimes we, we try to fabricate a very, very comfortable Christianity. And yet, Lord, what we see in your word is people to whom trial and, and suffering, those things are not foreign to their lives, but Lord, they are able to engage them with faith and purpose because of who you are and because of what you've done. And I just, I pray spirit that you will give us the appropriate mind and heart to look at our lives that, that we will stop pursuing a, a Christianity that is consumerism, a Christianity that says you know what, what can you do for me and instead you know pursuing a faith that says you have already given everything for me out of gratefulness, what may I give for you? Lord, Lord, mold our hearts by your spirit because that does not come naturally to any of us. But we need it, Lord. We need that heart and we need that mind. Bring us to your table, Father. Fill us with your presence. And let us walk in the shape of the cross. Amen.